An ancient fortress clings to the jagged rock face of a mountain. A storm rages outside while them indoors quiver in fear. A countess feels a naughty thirst, but not for cherry cola. <laughs> this is one from the vaults. Tonight we delve into the deadly realm of bloodsuckers. Our advice? Order the garlic bread. And maybe a steak? Eh? Oh, cause vampires. Welcome. And also, hello. I'm Warren. I'm Rufus. And I'm Clint. Together, we are the three currently unbedbound members of the Cinema Society. And we speak to thee, dear listeners, from our inner sanctum, our hidden crypt, Warren's Shed. We thank you for returning to what we suspect is the sole horror film podcast on the internet. Here is our second selection which abbreviated is also the SS. Stop it! Once again, we are rummaging around in the lost property of Anvil Studios. For those who don't know, Anvil Studios was a bastion of British horror cinema, established by unsuccessful eccentric artiste Beverly Anvil. A man described by his fellow actors as a hammy old fruit. And by fellow directors as a fruity old ham. And by his wife Penelope as wantonly homosexual. And when it became evident no other company would hire the man, Beverly used the remainder of his vast inheritance to purchase his own studios in Acton. The doors to Anvil Studios swung open on Friday the 25th of August 1939 and swung shut again just seven days later with the advent of World War II. It was not until 1947 when Anvil finally produced its first and most infamous low-budget thriller, The Malevolent Chinaman. Yes, a film that could clearly not be shown these days on account of its rampant anti-Semitism. Like many Anvil movies, it is currently missing, presumed burnt. And the rest, as they say, is what we're going to talk about on this podcast. Today we are here to discuss a vampiric masterpiece from 1958. A blood-soaked paragon of the genre. And arguably Anvil's most gory effluence. So grab a sick bucket as we present... Lost for blood! For blood! Lost for blood! Did one of you just have a farm? This is a tale of foolish Americans, desperate for adventure, who stumble upon a secluded hamlet in a distant land, a place of ancient fear, strange traditions, and odd superstitions. I say there, sir, why do you hammer up the front door every night? It is tradition. We folk are very superstitious, yeah. Yeah? Keep your voice down. 
do you wish to wake the dead? Well, we've had a long day. My students and I are off to bed. Yeah, tonight you sleep like the dead. Why do you keep saying dead? It is tradition. Do you have any local beer that doesn't taste like garlic? It is tradition. Before long, their moronic curiosity leads them to the lair of evil. Look there, a face in the window, pale, ghostly, kind of sexy. There's no one there, Professor Randall. I could have sworn. Lady Marie Bladlushed. The spectral countess, about whom so much, and yet so little, is known. A woman wrapped in rumor, legend, and very tight velvet. Welcome to Castle Bloodlashed. You're just in time for supper. Lust for Blood, coming to cinemas at some point. The blood-curdling new terror from Anvil Studios. We're dying for you to watch it. Well, 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 come back to another terrifying glimpse beneath the floorboards of Anvil, with this episode dedicated to one of the company's most controversial productions. Unlike previous softer outings for the studio, Lost for Blood came out at a time when audiences were suddenly craving more. More blood, more sex, more Americans. The film itself, as with the entire archive, was lost in the infamous Anvil blaze, but we found several newspaper reviews of the time that condemned the picture for its depravity and immoral spirit before describing every disturbing scene in eye-popping detail. It's actually thought that Lost for Blood was in fact a post-ironic riposte to horror audiences at the time. Beverly Anvil himself compared Lady Marie Bladlush's grim fetish for gore to that of the British viewing public. A post-ironic what? Riposte. And what's that? I, I have no idea. I think it's a kind of sandwich. An exemplary attitude of the movie can be heard in Bernard Klimper's radio review broadcast from the Daily Stereotype after the film's release in 1958. I would like to state for the record that I fought in World War II. I did not have a pleasant time, nor was it easy. I waded through mud chest deep and watched my friends blown to pieces in the streets of Berlin. I thought I would never see my family again, and wept at night between shelling raids and fitful nightmarish sleep. On three occasions, all I had to eat were the tears on my face. I would rather repeat that entire experience than watch Lust for Blood ever again. This is a film that trades plot for degeneracy, character for obscenity, and dialogue for gutter sex. If this is what people want to see, fear for our society. 
He gave the film three stars. I'm not sure what gutter sex is or was, but it's probably reasonable to assume that this film had it in mouthfuls. Anvil knew which way the wind was blowing by the late mid to late fifties. Producers cast smooth-talking Yankee heartthrob Don Von Brody in the leading role of Professor Randall in order to get the moist bums on seats. Don't you mean the most bums on seats? That too. Von Brody had recently relocated to Mariel, England after marrying an incredibly minor royal, Lady Mariella Chubsworth, Duchess of Swindon. Due to their new movie star's inability to speak with any other accent than his own, the other characters also had to be rewritten as Americans. Not content with merely showcasing a painfully handsome actor, producers also hired notorious Italian filmmaker Fabrizio Scenario, a man diagnosed by his own mother as sexually insane on the Lothario scale. The studio went even further by telling Scenario that he had a carte blanche when it came to his budget. When it became clear that he didn't understand what that meant, they translated it into Italian for him. Carta blanca. What's that mean? Uh, I'm not sure. It's some kind of sandwich, I think. Go and have your lunch, Warren, for pity's sake. yourself down will you? you've got crumbs all down your jersey how strange why i had soup right scenario was scheduled to direct a different vampire film for rival horror house cloven hoof pictures but was fired at the last minute due to his insistence on having total creative control over every aspect of the production including for some reason the catering buffet anvil had no such qualms and permitted scenario everything he needed Scenario brought fellow Italian and deviant Lorenzo Fashionista on board as screenwriter, reuniting the Scenario and Fashionista team that brought us Sex Vixens, Loins of Fire, and There's No Need to Put Your Hand There. The final draft of the script, reportedly based on a dream that Scenario had when he was divorcing his third wife, was cut by the National Censorship Board by 11 whole pages for scenes that were deplorably un-British. Since these pages were cut, they ironically ended up being the only scenes of the film that survived the Anvil fire ten years later, locked as they were in Fashionista's personal safe. The same safe which anchored his corpse to the Thames riverbed for several weeks in 1971, despite him being drowned with his collection of pneumatic women. The only other paper in the safe was apparently a contract signed by Lorenzo and Anvil's consultant, Malcolm Gordon, but that was written in Italian. And blood. The pages were eventually requisitioned by the Museum of Fear, Bethnal Green. We've never bothered going as it tends to attract some real nerds. But according to their terribly designed website, their recovered sheets are stiff as a board, having been coated in some sort of mysterious glue. After losing a rock-paper-scissor marathon, 
I was the one to visit the Museum of Fear in person. I went down last Tuesday, only to discover that it was closed. I went back the next day, only to discover that it was open. I was then allowed to conduct a short interview with current head curator, Annalise Belt. I'm not sure if you'll be able to tell, but we did not get on. Annalise Belt. You hold the title of head curator here at the Museum of Fear, which has risen somewhat inexplicably in popularity amongst the horror community ever since you began. I'm not done. Last year, you quote unquote successfully organised the inaugural London Horrorathon, screening scary movies 24 hours a day over 16 weeks. Yes. I haven't finished. Annalise followed this with her quote unquote hit zombie walk through Camberwell, featuring over 3,000 undead participants. That was fun. I'm actually still not done. And last year, you had hoped to follow up with an immersive haunted warehouse in Holloway, but you did not. Well, what the global pan... Yes, we all know what happened, Annalise. Instead of producing a thrilling interactive event, you settled for virtual disappointment and socially distanced depravity. Annalise, thank you for joining us. Can I speak now? If you could. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Yeah, regretting it a bit now, if I'm honest. Okay. Annalise, could you do what we came here for and just tell us a little bit about these pages cut from the Lust for Blood screenplay? Of course, Clint. I have them just here. Uh, Should you not be wearing uh, gloves when handling them? Only I can see you've got sticky digits from here. And clammy palms. Ah, well... uh... As you can feel, uh, if, if you just want to touch... Mmm. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, uh, starchy. Yes. Stiff white sheets. Mm. Exactly. Very firm. Mmm. They're like thick ridge-cut McCoy's crisps. Uh, yes. Uh, these actually give a good indication as to the uh, more uh, sensual horror erotica or (laughs) horotica if you like dreadful that the film's writer lorenzo really wished to work into his script could you speak up so for example speak up Annalise. uh for example we can read here a scene in which a monk burns a tuft of vampiric uh private hair from the pelvic region. Can't hear a word. He burns the vampire pubes. Bit quieter, please, Annalise. In order to protect the village from Countess Bloodlust, but the monk is actually intoxicated by the fumes from the burning pubis fur and, well, uh, engages in a demonic orgy with several of the American students. Right. Even now, the dialogue has proven so controversial that a local priest attempted to burn these pages on a recent visit. He was, in fact, intoxicated by the fumes from the burning effluence and then himself attempted to engage in a demonic orgy with several members of the local working men's club. Attempted? Hmm. By that point, the fire he started had 
somehow spread to the priest's toupee, and there was nothing. We, all the working men... Put him out? No. And yet we still have the script here intact. Yes. So whatever natural adhesive Lorenzo Fashionista coated these powerful freestanding pages in also protected them from water and fire damage. Uh, anything else? Well, there is something rather odd. As he lies dying, Professor Randall begins rambling out of nowhere about the curse of Malgor. Malgor? Malgor. And the directions above the speech bizarrely say, to camera. Like the character speaks direct to the audience. Exactly. It reads almost like a warning. Well, what does it say? Come on, I've got a bus to catch. The professor says, none must deal with the Malgor. <sighs> oh gosh, I'm sorry. I, can we wrap up? I actually have another appointment. And she just ended the interview? Yes, she was incredibly rude. That did seem evident. Going back the next day, I was horrified to discover that the museum had vanished. And more horrified to discover I'd got off at the wrong bus stop. Then, horrified a third time when I read that the museum had gone into liquidation. Well, it was never a solid business model. No, I mean it physically melted, along with its indignant head curator. Why, even fashionistas spaff stiffened pages. Yes. What remains of them erased scene's mystery has become a mystery. Lust for blood could arguably be measured nowadays in terms of its influence and the astonishing weight of onset mayhem, lawsuits and inexplicable death that the film has become synonymous with. From an actual knife fight between Scenario and Angelo de Hysteria, his director of photography, during the second hour of shooting, to that time the film's costumiers were arrested for convincing tourists in Soho that they were dogs, the film has penetrated heartily into the annals of movie-making history. Its steamy influence can be seen in later horror flicks, such as the vampiric gangbang in Hal Burke's seminal classic Once Bitten, Twice Bitten from 1969. Or the werewolf threesome featured in Mary Blister's episode of the mid-70s horror anthology series Tales from the Sarcophagus. Even recently, in the undead orgies of 2016's award-winning Gut Rock. Needless to say, most of the movie's narrative revolved around nubile young American students fornicating and then dying, or dying and then fornicating. And, despite a plot flimsier than the rigid reams of dialogue milked from Fashionista, Lost for Blood was Anvil's first international hit so far, gaining fans from both sides of the Atlantic and also one side of the Pacific. Time for some music? Oh, I was just getting into the rhythm of it there. Okay, no, fine, let's, let's just carry on then. No, no, I, I think the moment's gone now. Uh, I'm happy to keep going. No, no, just leave it. Play the music.
we're back. 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 And back. We're, we're Shall I? Back. Please do. With the aggressively puritanical attitudes that America had then and still does have now, the film was edited massively for the snivelling Christian mundanity that was running roughshod through the late 50s experimentalism in cinema. The All-American Committee of Decency and Segregation cut the original edit by 88 minutes, making it the first movie in US history to be shorter than its own trailer. Although initially outraged by the censorship of his masterpiece, Fabrizio Scenario went on to deliberately make such provocatively short movies for the rest of his career. This style of film, known as scenarism, after the film's controversial director, has had a renaissance in recent cinema to please the decreasing attention span of contemporary audiences, with 17 scenarist films alone slated for release in the next week. So, despite the annihilation of the original feature-length version shown here in Blighty, several smut-free copies of the condensed vampiric flick are still in rotation in the video libraries of America's more culturally deprived states. And it just so happens I've got a cousin who lives in such a place. Oh, in one of the culturally deprived states? No, in a video library. Basically, we have, in all its censored glory, the full USA cut of Lust for Blood. Pop it on play, Batman. song and I shall answer with my own faithful melody. But first, my more carnal desires ravish my... I want your essays on Eastern European mythology by Tuesday. Any questions? Um, Professor Randall? Yes, Shirley? Me and a few others heard about your study expedition to Hungaria. Ah, yes, my entirely academic trip to Castle Bloodlust. It'd be swell if we could accompany you. My father can pay for us all. Mm, I'll see what I can arrange. Is that a yes, Professor? <laughs> it's not a no, yes. Class dismissed. Hey, Cheryl. You still in for our Shirts vs. Skins wrestling match? It's tonight at the all-new Ball Youth Club and Burger Bar. Heck, <laughs> that sounds fun. I'd have to say... No, thank you. Ah, the young Americans. You have arrived just in time for our taverns lock-in and lock-up. Drink up, for the night is young, and so are... You. You are Mary Bladlushed? But how? She's been dead for centuries! Hush. Let me admire that beautiful neck and your stunning... The Countess is defeated! was a good, hard... Bible reading. Blimey. 
That even got me hot under the collar. That's your electric blanket, isn't it? I can't switch the damn thing off. My girlfriend burnt instructions in microwave. She thought they were toast. There are so many difficult parts of that sentence, Rufus. You have a girlfriend? More on her later. What? No! Now, it would be remiss of us not to mention the biggest controversy surrounding Lust for Blood, and perhaps the sole reason it's such a cult cyst in the hearts of cinephiles today. You see, aside from the film's content, the aforementioned knife fights, the imprisonment of Anvil's entire wardrobe department, and the damning diagnosis of its director, this movie has one last grisly twist in its tail. Like a pig! <sighs> yes, Rufus, like a pig. Just exactly like a pig. And, just like a pig, this gruesome postscript was a poor sign of things to come. Poor sign, eh? Like a pig. Just exactly like a pig. Leading actress, Ms Angela Fowles Porter, demonstrated great potential in her performance as the bloodthirsty countess. Whilst most starlets of the day had to portray half-written, half-wit waifs, known in the industry as chop, slop and drop parts, the sort who were made to cry, scream, cry, or be hacked in half on screen. Angela Fowles Porter, however, was literally a cut above. She was six foot seven. Following the success of Lust, hordes of other studios were, if not exactly beating down her door, were knocking less than politely upon it. Come September 1958, Fowles Porter was due to commence filming the romantic thriller Put a bullet in my heart and tell me you love me. But she never arrived at the set on that foggy Friday morning. A city and then county and then nationwide woman hunt ensued. Out of respect for the missing actress, her role went unfilled as the director began shooting without her in the hopes he could edit her in later on. Then on Christmas Eve, months after her disappearance, police received a phone call from a person who only gave their initials, M.G., with a tip-off on the whereabouts of Miss Angela. Unfortunately for her, this hint was all too true. She was in fact found in a small flat in Dulwich. It was privately rented by her former co-star Don Von Brody, unbeknownst to his vaguely regal wife. It transpired the pair had slopped out an affair during the film's more than regularly amorous shoot. Since then, Fowles Porter had been secretly ensconced in the actor's South London shag castle. It was later voted top seventh scandal of the decade in Tittle Tattle Weekly. But she wasn't found to be fighting fit. Whether due to one of Von Brody's wacky sexual proclivities, an American after-dinner gun display gone wrong, or just plain old murder, Angela F.P. was discovered killed in the bath. Killed to death. Don denied Delotte claiming his mistress had ditched him months earlier for screenwriter Lorenzo Fashionista, also nowhere to be found at the time. Maybe the hot-headed film star drowned her out of jealousy. Perhaps his royal wife Mariella learned the truth and did away with her rival. Or Angela found those lost scenes written by Fashionista, the paper rigid from self-pleasure, and read something that she weren't right meant to. Maybe she fell asleep in bath and forgot to wake up again in time. Any of these explanations are all equally possible. But it was Von Brody who copped for it. The nine-time winner of Cine Mirror magazine's most alluring moustache was found guilty of high philandering and placed in Pentonville Maximum Security Prison the very next day. Von Brody died in prison in 1991 and we've heard nothing from him since. 
Mariella Chubsworth went on to marry several other high-profile serial killers. Put a bullet in my heart and tell me you love me remains to this day the only romantic thriller in which there is only one lover, as this clip shows. I say, Esmeralda, we haven't even a moment together in each other's company. Every time I turn to look in your eyes, it seems you're gone again. Why, even now, see here, you've left already. Esmeralda, sooner or later you're going to have to talk to me. You can't keep leaving the room the moment I walk in. Esmeralda! Esmeralda! Actually a surprisingly good film. Aye, and the first film my girlfriend saw in the cinema. How old is she? Stop asking questions! lovers that was lust for blood next week we'll be answering some more of your questions so please email us some our address is cinemasociety at gmail.com and remember cinema is with an s that's s for sausage uh, sorrow or sacrilege and big thanks to itunes user big milk 19 who left us this wonderful bit of feedback on the podcast Films preserve something of a person. Their voice, their likeness, their soul perhaps. And as long as these movies last, then these people live. We never die so long as they remain. And death is overcome. Thanks for that, Big Malk 19. So that's it for another gruesome gallop down movie memory lane. Join us again as we peek into the gaping abyss of Anvil to discuss our next film, The Face Without a Face. A 1963 body horror mindbender that heaved Anvil's bulky bloat into 60s psychedelia without even a pinch of acid in sight. Beverly Anvil couldn't even spell LSD. But until then... This is Rufus. That was Rufus. That was Warren. And that was Warren. Clint. Clint. And this has been one. One from the from the vault. One from the vault. One from the Vaults is a co-production between the Cinema Society and Medium Rare Productions. It was written and performed by Joel Heritage, Jacob Lovick and Jack Robertson, with additional performances by Hannah Fretwell, Tyler Harding and Alice Marshall, and edited by Jacob Lovick. The music is by Cyclone Marlowe. You can follow us on at Cinema Society on Twitter, email us on cinemasociety at gmail.com, and remember, cinema is always spelt with an S.